Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire women. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome to another episode of Sky Women. We are so excited today to have a special guest. Um, Before we get started though, I wanted to share a review from one of our amazing patients who said, Dr. Moyers is more than just a doctor. She's a friend. Above all, she shows compassion to all her patients while also equipping them with critical information they need to make solid personal health decisions. She's a 10 in my book. Friends, this personalized care one-on-one education partnership just means the world. And I am just so grateful for um, patients who trust me with their care. So thank you for that awesome review. All right, without further ado, our guest today is Dr. Maggie Sambel. She is a wife, mother, and insulin-dependent diabetic, gardener, book lover, supporter of the arts, and board-certified pediatrician. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And you're a 10 out of 10 in my book. too. <laughs> okay, friends. So Dr. Sambel is one of my dearest friends and we have known each other since first semester of medical school, I believe. Correct. Correct. Right. So you have a very interesting trajectory as we look at your medical education and then you know, like in hindsight, I think that you, you've seen a lot more clearly kind of what was going on. Um, so we're just going to dive into it. You know, we went to medical school at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth, Texas. And then you went on and completed your dual residency program through the Doctors Hospital and Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So I'm outside of Columbus. I'm actually, for the last three years, I've been at Knox Community Hospital, uh, which is Mount Vernon. It's about um, 60 miles from Columbus, Ohio, Uh, and also about 60 miles from my hometown of Zanesville. I practiced medicine in Zanesville for 10 years. I've I've been in rural medicine throughout my entire career. Uh, I provide um, inpatient and outpatient care for sick and well infants. Uh, I run a level one newborn nursery. Um, and, uh, and I do also outpatient work as well too. At nice community hospital. I went to college at Kenyon college and we currently Mm -hmm. live, um, practically on the campus, uh, Ohio. Yes. We have 40 acres and it's just a great place to raise a family. Yeah. Medicine. So you and Corey, your husband, you guys dated in college, right? Correct. We were 19 years old when we met. Wow. <laughs> and we, you know, we had, uh, we, we had periods of time we were together and periods of time where we were not together. Um, you know, very challenging. He was obtaining a master's degree in film in Florida and I was obtaining a medical degree in Texas. Uh, he went to California for a while and I came back to Ohio. And so we've had a meandering pathway. Sure. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about medical school and when you were struggling a bit and let's talk about that leading up to you being diagnosed with type one diabetes. I uh, was diagnosed in, I think we talked about it, April of 2004. I did struggle academically 
at times. Um, I think in retrospect, I had probably been an insulin dependent diabetic for at least five years, if not seven prior to my diagnosis. And I had periods where I was doing well and I think my pancreas was functioning and I had periods where um, I was not doing well and I think I was hyperglycemic. I distinctly remember at different times, I remember taking a test more than once and somebody, you know, in the morning I would eat a big breakfast in, you know, in preparation for um, testing. And I remember people waking me up and putting a pencil in my hand and saying, student Dr. Zampo, like you have to wake up, you have to finish your test. You have to finish your test. Um, I, did, I had area, uh, periods of, I think profound hyperglycemia at times uh, that I didn't understand and I didn't know what was happening. Wow. Okay. So what, because I remember distinctly you being diagnosed because we had gone shopping that day and you declined going out to get a pedicure. I guess it had been a post-test day. It had to have been a post-test day. (laughs) Must've been a post-test day. Um, But uh, what's interesting is I had been in the uh, student clinic earlier that day uh, because I was having symptoms and they were so vague and nonspecific. I was tired and I was having leg cramps and, it, you know, but other than that, I looked healthy. Um, I, I wasn't ill. I didn't have a fever. So leaving the clinic as a, as a side, you know, they just had me leave a urine sample for, I think, I don't even really know why, because I was going to have labs, fasting labs the next day to get my electrolytes checked because I was having these leg cramps. Um, and so I sort of left the sample in the office and then I left with you. And I, I think we weren't as dependent on our cell phones at that time. And so we were running around all day and they had called the house and they had called. And then I got these and they, I think they must, I must've had a cell phone and they must've left a message on the cell phone, but I got progressively more um, worried <laughs> messages on my phone that I needed to return to the clinic, uh, that I had an abnormality on my urine. Um, and then later as we ran around all day, um, I was told to, to go to the emergency room. And so, you know, I eventually called back the on-call physician and, and I argued with them. I said, what do you mean go to the emergency room? I'm going to get these labs tomorrow. I'm on my OB-GYN rotation. I'm going to get the labs in between. I'm going to go see hospitalized patients and then get the labs. And then, um, I, you know, I have patients to see in the clinic. Um, and they, they made me go to the emergency room that night. Yeah, I remember. You were there for quite some time before you got admitted. Yes. Um, I remember just being sort of not difficult, but a little difficult. (laughs) Um, I was arguing with them. uh, And I remember that I was standing there, there was um, uh, an intern and then the regular doc and, and the nurse um, and myself were sort of in a cluster and they took my blood sugar. And by that time I had been fasting hours, hours. I think when I got, I had a coffee with you and we might have gotten lunch, maybe I can't recall. Um, but I essentially had at least eight hours with nothing to eat. And I had a blood sugar of 476. Wow. Yeah. So at this, you're how old at this stage? 26, 26 years old. Yes. And it is type one diabetes, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. Late okay. onset, but type one. And I know it was shocking for everybody, (laughs) probably mostly you, which is why you're like argumentative. (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I just, you're in denial, like this is denial. Right. (laughs) Right. So I remember you being hospitalized and stopping by to see you and 
quickly kind of making an exit, realizing that you were vomiting, you were miserable, your mom was there with you supporting you and like, this is not the time for social hour. <laughs> well, and the other thing too, is I, every time I vomited, you vomited because you were <laughs> first trimester, <laughs> like, you know, like you were so sensitive to like just smells and, you know, <laughs> I forgot about that. That's probably why I made a quick exit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, my mom flew down immediately. So I was admitted that night and my mom flew down immediately. I did not meet criteria for an ICU admission. I was close, but I was not in at that time, even in DKA. Um, and I had been living at that level for a really long time. Right. So if I remember correctly, um, you sometimes had difficulty in your a particular class. It seemed like it was just one class a semester that you really challenged with and you remediated and you did fine. And you were like, I think I'm just stupid or I, I have ADHD or something like, and I was truly just hyperglycemic because I, you know, I haven't subsequently struggled with any of my board exams or anything like that, but I was truly hyperglycemic. I was just had difficulty, um, you know, retaining information and functioning. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, it's, it's just, is it's amazing. It's almost amazing that I was somewhat successful until that point. With right. the, I, I was pretty sick. I, I mean, it permeates sick. your whole life and you've mm-hmm. got to then learn how to manage life as a diabetic. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know, you may have more experience with pediatric patients being diagnosed with diabetes, but as an adult, I feel like that's really hard. You know, all of a sudden you've got to learn, you don't have mom or dad sitting there telling you how to do this. You've got to figure it out on your own and you've got to go back on your medical school rotations. Well, I weirdly been given some either conflicting advice and I internalized it correctly or some bad advice because I was told that if I missed more than a week of medical school, my rotations that I would not graduate on time. And I either internalized that or processed that in a certain way that I got my act together and I did not miss. I was hospitalized for five days and I went back to rotations on the seventh day. And I, um, as you know, with little kids, there's a ton of education that's given for new onset insulin dependent diabetics. Uh, and as an adult, you do that sort of slowly and over time and as an outpatient. And, um, and, uh, I just went back to work (laughs) with this massive sort of life change and this grief process that goes along with, I think any new significant diagnosis. Um, I was not ready to go back. Uh, and I probably should have just taken some more time. Uh, but I remembered, uh, I, I had trouble giving myself injecting and I was nervous about giving myself insulin even when I went back. And so I was on a rotation with Ira and I was like, Ira, I'm just going to need you to give me these shots. (laughs) And he was like, I love giving shots. (laughs) Like He was like the perfect person. So I like packed up my stuff and I would pack up my breakfast and my lunch and I would go and I would like give my, give give myself 15 minutes and Ira would give me a shot and I wait 15 minutes and then I would eat breakfast and I was just there. I mean, I lived alone at the time I was around other people, you know, Um, um, right. So I had trouble self-injecting, but I also was worried about, you know, the consequences of, you know, having insulin on board and still titrating my doses and right. know, all the interesting things. So, yeah. It was, so there, the community came out in a lot of ways, you know, you were yeah. there, um, Mo was there, Laney was there, you know, we, Jack was there. We had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of support. Yeah. 
but it was a very, very, very difficult time on top of, you know, the most difficult time of your life without a new onset diagnosis. True. True. Yeah. And then deciding on your specialty, you know, ha- having to go through those rotations and be competitive. I mean, the things that we put ourselves through to become physicians is just unreal. You know, so I was doing rotations at, you know, in Columbus at the children's hospital, you know, just barely a year into this and having still lows and highs and spikes and, you know, and trying to work in exercise and self-care. Um, And did you find that stress worsened? Like you had a harder time controlling your diabetes when you were stressed? I do still. I do still. Right. So your blood sugar spike. Right. And now I wear a pump um, Uh and I have a continuous monitoring system. I have a loop, um, which is very, very helpful. And I've had, you know, the best numbers in terms of an A1C and, um, uh, you know, less variance than I've ever had doing those things. Right. Um, but I graduated from residency in 2008 and I took my first job and moved home. And then I started thinking about pregnancy. You know, we got married in 2008. You were my maid of honor. (laughs) Yeah, It was an awesome wedding, but I remember being very worried about you. I was very worried because your blood sugars were so high with all the stress around the wedding. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, you know, with the honeymoon too, eating just a little differently and, and traveling and all those, it just complicated and it takes you a long time to figure out how to maintain blood sugar control while traveling and eating different foods and indulging a little bit more. Right. So talk to me about whenever you guys decided that you were ready to start a family and you realized, okay, I know the effects of diabetes on babies. So how do I get good control of my glycemic control? So I had, um, decent control. What anybody would consider to be optimal control going and starting around 2009, 2010, you know, I had an A1C of about six, five, um, which is optimal for people who are just living, you know, not people who are trying to get pregnant. So even though my numbers looked decent, I would like them to be lower. I'd like them to be around 6.0 and A1C, which is a three-month hemoglobin A1C, a three-month marker of how well you're controlled. But I was also having big swings. So to get an average of a 6.5, I felt that I was having lows and highs, or you know, I, I would like to kind of narrow that gap to be very, very steady and stable without spikes and high and spikes and low to make that average look decent. So, you know, around 2009, 2010, we were thinking of pregnancy and I started reaching out to OB-GYNs, particularly maternal fetal medicine OB-GYNs saying, I am not pregnant. I'm wanting to get pregnant. Will you help me control my blood sugars? But there's this interesting sort of gap with before you're pregnant. So typically you're seen six, seven, eight weeks after you're pregnant. That's your first appointment with an OB-GYN. So nobody wanted to help me. And then they help you get really tightly controlled. But by that time, so much has happened. You know, the heart is formed, the neurotube is formed, you know, that, that if you come in at six, eight weeks and you're not, your level of control is not good, then um, it seems like it's too late. Right. So I love that you are being proactive, but I find it concerning that your preconception counseling 
you know, you really couldn't get pointed in the right direction. I know you were working with your endocrinologist, but you felt like we're just not cutting it. Right. And she just felt that my numbers were really good at the Mm -hmm. time. And, you know, you see them every three months and they're not, you know, looking, she wasn't, I, I think at the time, aggressive enough for me. Right. Um, so I did reach out uh, to a company, um, this wonderful man uh, named Gary Schneider, who is the owner and the clinical director of Integrated Diabetes um, Services. And so it sort of, at that time, it was very, very novel to meet with somebody via Zoom um, and to pay a fee for service, you know, right. <laughs> right? sort of the things that have become a lot more normalized. He was really on the cutting edge. Uh, so he is a, um, clinical diabetic educator. He's an exercise physiologist. Uh, he had written a number of books at that point. I think he's up to six now. Um, the most famous book that he wrote is called think like a pancreas, Um, and, uh, and so I just started having, you know, I paid a fee for service and I started working with him and we shaved off. I mean, I was running like five, two and five, five, he continued to co-manage me throughout the pregnancy. So I had, I had an OB-GYN, um, I was seen by maternal fetal medicine. Um, and, uh, so that was through Ohio state, a regular OB-GYN. And then I had a maternal fetal medicine doc and then he co-managed. So I would send blood sugar law two places to maternal fetal medicine and um to uh, gary snyder and he co-managed my so tanked me up for pregnancy got me ready for pregnancy and then co- continued to co-manage my pregnancy wow wow and you went on and had a healthy pregnancy although healthy i remember baby. that your first pregnancy was not without its bumps in the road <laughs> So I slipped on the ice and I broke my ankle and then I got a DVT. (laughs) So it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, And through that. And so then suddenly I was, I had been exercising to keep my blood sugars down. And so suddenly I just had to be very, very, very well controlled. Uh, So that was in February and uh, early February, my child was born in late March. So that was guest in 2011. So Gary managed and I had a healthy baby. He uh, had a little bit of uh, increased work of breathing. He had to transitional to kidney of the newborn, uh, but he did not have any problems with his blood sugar. Yeah. What, <laughs> did, where did they deliver you? What gestational age did they deliver you at? So they got, uh, I argued um, and I negotiated, negotiated, negotiated and got to 38 weeks and six days. <laughs> they would not let me go to 39 and 0. <laughs> you know, that we tried to induce labor and it just didn't work. And so then I was a scheduled c-section the following day so yes. the second time around did you work with gary again to keep i did control correct okay. throughout the whole thing gus was large for gestational age at 38 weeks and six days at eight pounds eight ounces and so atticus was a scheduled c-section also 38 and six um and but he was 10 pounds wow but also but he didn't ever drop his blood sugar okay so i want to point out a couple of things that um have come up as I hear you talking, I hear you saying that you advocated for yourself, even when you were told everything's fine, you felt like you knew you could do better and you looked for resources, Correct. even if it was outside of the norm. Correct. Also, whenever it came time or for delivery and planning for delivery, you were also advocating for those extra days. And can you tell us kind of why? Well, I, you know, I think there's this pull and tug sometimes um, between pediatrics and obstetrics of, um, 
you know, what constitutes a premature delivery or an early term delivery or a late preterm delivery. So there's all these kind of numbers and, and, you know, we know that, um, there's such a, a give and, t- and take between trying to get kids to term and, and the brain formation and development of the lungs and development of the heart and, you know, and all those things. Um, so. From, so from a pediatric standpoint, you were hoping for those extra days to avoid other complications that can occur with early term deliveries. Correct. You know, I think OBGYNs are very, tend to be very, very comfortable um, developing 30, you know, delivering a baby after 37 weeks, 37 to no. Um, But, you know, I just 24 hour periods do make a difference, you know, so, you know, pediatricians want 39 and no, but with insulin dependent diabetics, there are incidences of stillborn babies that occur after 39 weeks. Right. Which is why that's not (laughs) like, I always say nothing good happens after 40 weeks and insulin diabetics. We have to back that up, back that number up. Correct. Right. 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 Okay. So how do you feel that it's changed your approach to patient care? Having such a massive diagnosis or, oh, I definitely think it's made me a better doctor. It's maybe a better parent. Um, it's uh, to understand, I think, the whole start to finish process of having any kind of complications, I think, makes you a better physician. Um, I think I explain things a lot better. I think I'm so willing to negotiate and to listen to the patient and to have a back and forth and to make sure that everybody is comfortable with the plan. Everybody understands the plan. Everybody's comfortable with the mm-hmm. plan, those types of things. Um, but I, I think it makes me just also a forgiving person, um, you know, to understand that there's a grief process with any diagnosis. Right. Know? Oh, I love that shared decision-making process. Yes. Yeah. Cause you have to have buy-in. And so it takes education for patient care. Yes. Um, I, you know, I want my patients to understand what's going on with their body so that they can then make the best decisions for themselves. And I just think, you know, what you're doing is fascinating, you know, to allow, um, you know, to allow more time and to have such customized care for your patients. I think it's just amazing. Oh, thank you. It's definitely a labor of love. All right. I want your best tips for new moms in regards to infant care or just whatever it is you see, like you get all the questions you're seeing moms more frequently than we are as OBGYNs. um, Because now we might see them one week out if it's surgical delivery, and then by three weeks, six weeks. So they might have two to three visits with their OBGYN, but in terms of infant care, you're seeing them frequently. So fill us in. So I typically see families two to five days following discharge from the hospital. And that's to check weight and bilirubin. That depends. There's a difference if you're a breastfed infant or a bottle feeding infant. There's a difference if you are a first time parent, a first time nursing parent. So we tend to, you know, sometimes I see babies in 24 hours after leaving the hospital. So I see them. And then if they're, you know, particularly if they're having some weight loss or some issues with breastfeeding, sometimes we follow them, you know, if they're approaching a 10% total body weight loss, uh, we tend to follow them, you know, maybe even every two to three days, just to make sure that, you know, they start to, you know, hit that 
um, the maximum weight loss at four to five days for a full-term kid and then start to regain birth, the, you know, regain birth weight. Um, so we do not want a baby to exceed 10% total body weight loss because if you're a hundred pound person and you lose 10% of your weight, you're a 90 pound person. It is a profound amount of weight loss. And if you cruise past 11, 12, 13% weight loss, sometimes you're at risk for, you know, pre-renal azotemia and the kidney shutting hey. down and things like that. I do see them much more frequently than you do because of the weight in Billy Rubin checks in the office. Um, <clears throat> we also screen for depression at those appointments. Um, so I screen for depression um, very, very frequently. I love that. Almost all six sick and well appointments until they're six months old. You're screening use for postpartum depression. Crash using the oh my gosh, I tools. love that. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what do you do? Because my a pediatrician does that as well, and I remember looking at him and going, "Thank you, I love that you're doing this." But if you have a positive screen, what's your next step of action? So, but it, so about a score. So the Edinburgh scores go zero to thirty. 10 or higher is considered to be a positive screen. And depending on how the height of the screening tool, I typically touch base with the OBGYNs. So okay. some, if it's pretty high, I pick up the phone and call them. If it's sort of um, elevated, I re and they're, they have not had a history of postpartum depression. They're not currently on uh, medications, antidepressant medications. They're not in counseling. You know, if it's a new onset thing, I, um, I have ability through our electronic medical record to message the OBGYN. Well, I feel like with the Edinburgh depression scale that most moms are teetering on the line of it being positive because well, I, with the sleep deprivation, it makes you like semi-depressed and feeling a little crazy. Correct. Absolutely. And so I almost, I say to moms, you know, in pediatrics, we feel that hundred percent of moms have some symptoms of postpartum depression. Um, and it, oftentimes you just think, oh, I'm, I'm just tired of the sleep deprivation, you know, cause the sleep deprivation can be so profound. Um, but, uh, but there's a, I tell them there's grief process because the body loves being pregnant, you know, <laughs> that, cause why would we ever do this? The body loves being pregnant. And so when you're no longer pregnant, even though you have a beautiful child, um, there is a grief process with that and the hormonal shifts and the sleep deprivation and the big change in life. Um, that is such an interesting take. I've never really thought about that on a deep level, but I will tell you that with my first pregnancy, I remember him being maybe a week old and I headed out just to run to the bank. And I remember feeling so profoundly sad and I couldn't identify what it was. And I realized, oh my God, this is the first time in 10 months that I've been alone by myself, not with this little one I'm carrying for in my uterus. You know? right. It was just, it was in, an interesting perspective at, you know, that young age, first time mom. I was like, oh, this is, this is why I'm feeling a little sad. There's a that, grief process when the body is no longer pregnant. Interesting. Yeah. I okay. Think. Well, and I think that it takes a good year before you actually kind of feel yourself again in your body. Yeah. Or two. Yeah. <laughs> it took me two years. I'm, you know, in all sincerity, it took me two years to, mm -hmm. to say, oh, I'm ready to maybe start a little exercise. I'm ready to um, think of myself as 
a separate person, <laughs> you know, not, not give, 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 give quite so much. Right. Um, I feel like that that's really important. And I love that we're touching on um, self-care for mamas because we tend to be martyrs. We tend to do everything yes. for everybody else. And, you know, from newborns to our middle age, when kids are leaving the house, I hear it over and over again, that women are really struggling with who am I aside for this role, because we've neglected it for so long. And so I think it's so important to remind ourselves from time to time who we are aside mm -hmm. from the wife, the mother, the sister, the daughter, right? right? But just to kind of honor um, our unique being. I agree. I couldn't agree more. So best tips for new moms. Do you have like a top three? Uh, I do. I do. I think um, sort of in line with the self-care that we were just talking about, I think that moms need to be able to be kind and forgiving of themselves, uh, their patience, their energy, their body, their confidence. Um, I think they need to understand that they are the perfect parent for their child, but that there is no perfect parent, obviously, mm -hmm. um, that it's okay to be scared, uh, to make mistakes, to be imperfect, to need a break. And I, I do, one thing I tell most patients that come through the office, especially moms who have a high level of anxiety, uh, is that. I just like to remind them that, you know, infants used to be born in the woods and in caves. <laughs> I mean, granted the infant mortality rate was pretty high, but they are very hard to break. It's really Resilient. hard to break them. Yes. You know, I mean, it's, you know, now that you've had four, I mean, you agree, right? Oh, yeah. And one of the things I always tell moms is that your baby's not going to die from crying. So Correct. if you are at your wits end, put baby down put them in the crib place and walk, crib, away. And walk yes. away shut the door take a shower it doesn't matter it. they're not yes. going to remember they're likely going to fall asleep correct because they're probably come, prepared yeah. and you will come back a better human and ready to comfort them and care for them right. but when you're at your wits end like sometimes you just need a break parenting in a pandemic is awful especially for new parents I tell parents all the time that you're not supposed to be parenting in a vacuum. You're supposed to be able to have a support system. You're supposed to go on play dates. You're supposed to take your newborn to the zoo, you know, which is not for you, for the newborn. It's for you, right? You're supposed <laughs> to have a coffee date. You know, you're supposed to um, let alone have a support system of people who can come and hold babies while you take a shower or help you clean or those sort of doula positions, basically. Um, you know, this this isolation is difficult, I think, for all parents, parents mm -hmm. of children of any age, not just new moms. Um, and, uh, and, and parents need to be very, very, very conscientious of ways to um, relieve some of their stress mm, this is related to their isolation. Point. Yes, yeah. such a good point. I feel like that the pandemic has been particularly hard on our teens because it's limited their socialization Social. and it's just not the same as zooming and you know text messaging and facetiming 
um, you know, they're meant to kind of have these experiences. And what are you seeing in the pediatric practice? I could not agree more. I think it's been very, very difficult on our, our adolescents, also in the pre-adolescents. Um, you know, it's so important to build those social skills together and it's part of their developmental arc. And it's it's been almost a year. And you and I had discussed how there is just kind of a, a, a we fall short a little bit with our adolescents. Correct. Can you speak to that a little bit? So I think pediatricians do a wonderful job with infants and early childhood and early childhood development, in part because we see them so frequently in the office. You have a two-week check, a two-month, four-month, six-month, nine-month, 12-month. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and I think we're able to kind of grasp on different parts of development and what the family needs at those times. We see them so frequently. But generally, I don't see most of my adolescents every year. Optimally, I would love to see my adolescents every year, but things happen. And sometimes they get their sports physical at the elementary or at the high school. Um, and when I do see them, I have 20 minutes, I have 20 minutes to discuss, you know, hearing and vision and vaccines and um, their growth, you know, their development, how things are going educationally, how they're feeling emotionally, um, and then to give them a little bit of anticipatory guidance. Uh, so I feel that puberty is one thing that is glossed over. I, I have a handout that I provide on puberty, and I recommend a couple of books, um, typically, but it gets lost in this discussion of the physical, unless they're having any problems. So what um, are your book recommendations? So I, the American Girl Dolls make a book on puberty for girls. Mm -hmm. uh, and it comes in two parts. And it's benign. You know, I think it's very, um, you know, it's non inflammatory. And there's going to be nothing. I think that I always recommend that parents vet the books first, but I think that there's nothing in there that would be too um, problematic for most parents. Um, I like the body scoop. I don't know if you've recommended that one. Um, that tends I to haven't checked bit. it out. Yeah, that's a good one too. Um, so those are pretty, those are my recommendations for girls. Um, okay. But I think oftentimes, you know, I don't know what your personal experience was with talking about puberty and sex with your parents, but I feel that, uh, again, in this area, a lot of times that's going to be something that's left up to the school or they're going to be just basic nuts and bolts information is going to come from the parents. Um, and and uh, and then the kids are, are left for some peer um, interactions regarding, you know, like what their friends tell them, at the mercy of what their friends tell them. Absolutely. And what they're learning on the internet, you know? Absolutely. And I had so many um, conversations with my oldest leading up to that because in third grade, he was starting to ask questions. And even still, he's like, yeah, there's a lot that they don't teach you. I mean, I learned a lot from my friends. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then you want to be like, what specifically did you learn from your friends? <laughs> exactly. You know, just, you might have to straighten it on out. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about because I love PD adolescents, like getting girls at a young age and being able to educate them about their body and what's going on and empowering them and their body and their choices is just something that I wish that I had. So I want to show up for my patients in that way. And so I love it when uh, adolescent finds me <laughs> or yes. when their pediatrician uh, sends them my way. So I am so excited in the spring 
I'm going to start offering girlology classes. What's new about me is all about puberty and it's kind of for that eight to 11 year old. And then later we'll add on the sex ed piece. Um, and so this is something that anybody across the country could take with me because it is just educational content. So they could zoom. Right. Then, okay. Are you going to have pre-recorded classes or are you going to have live classes? How does that work? They will be live. Okay. That this is an area where we could be doing so much better. And if we started to address these things at the, at the level, you know, eight to 11 year olds, we're probably, we're going to do better in the long term term for their um, sort of mental health and their thoughts and their hangups and their, yes. you, know, you know what I mean? You know, and, uh, and they, you know, hopefully will influence them that they won't be embarrassed to talk about these things and just yes. sort of to take control of their sexual health and their own bodies at yes. age eight is something that our generation did not have. Absolutely not. No. I mean, when I started my period, I was certain that my, I was internally bleeding and that my brother you know, had harmed me because I was laying in the, the living room watching TV and he stepped on my stomach earlier that day. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, my I famous quote, <laughs> my famous quote was, uh, I'm so glad this only happens once a year. And my mom was like, what are they teaching you in school? <laughs> like, I was just like, I'm so glad this only happens once a year. And she was like, I didn't have the heart to tell you at that moment. <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> Every 28 days, baby. I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I had, I had developed this mother daughter course because I really wanted those lines of education and communication to be happening between parents and child. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized I was looking at what girlology was doing. And I'm like, this dynamic duo has it figured out and I can partner with them. Like, so you were actually partnering with them. I, Good for you. Yeah. Okay. I just partnered with them. So I'm really excited because just the graphics and all of the material is just readily done. And as an individual, like it was so much work to get it all up Correct. and running. No, that's fantastic. Does girlology also have a section for male? Oh, I love that you asked this question. They do. They have one called guyology. So there's three different courses that are offered. Girlology or the what's new about me. There's a guyology arm that also is the education about puberty. And then the co-ed class is the sex ed class. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Are you just starting with girlology or are you also going to do guyology? I'm just starting with girlology because that's my cup of yes. tea. All right. Well, this has been delightful and it's just so empowering to share our stories because I think that there is power in just recognizing yourself and someone else's story and learning something. You know, I find that across a, the age span, there's something that just about anyone who listens can kind of take away from these uh, podcasts. So you have a minute for a rapid fire before we finish? Sure. Okay. Yes. All right. So what's that one thing that keeps you centered? My family. Okay. And tell me what your favorite thing to do is with your family right now. Um, we love to wander around our property. I'm such an introvert and I'm such a homebody that I just like being outside. I like being in the woods and I like being with my children and exploring, um, you know, our unique environment up here. 
Yeah, I think it's just a wonderland for them. Yes. Awesome. Okay, what's on your nightstand? Right now, I have a bunch of cooking magazines. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, my father's retired physician, and a couple years back, um, he um, like closed his practice, and they still send him magazines. And so my mom fishes out all the cooking magazines and sends them your way. <laughs> And it's so much fun. Yes, I have a cute little silver vase also that has some flowers in it right now. And that's I, my, my glasses, my reading glasses. <laughs> I love that. I remember your passion for cooking in medical school and it always kind of inspired us to, you know, have um, potluck dinners, right? Yes. Where we would get yes. together and cook different dishes. <sighs> okay, what's a perfect day for Maggie Sambo? Again, I'm an absolute homebody. So sleeping in a little bit late, waking up, having my children there, having everybody having the day off, um, cooking a little bit um, and uh, talking on the phone with my mom. Perfect day. A little <laughs> glass of wine, maybe later. That's right. It, it wouldn't be a perfect day without ensemble. No. <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> She's amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sambo. This thank is you such so a pleasure much for having me. I cannot thank you enough. I really enjoyed this. All right, Sky Community, episode 13. Thank you so much for showing up and listening. If you found this episode helpful, rate, review, and share with a friend. Make sure you subscribe so that you get notified of new episodes. They come out weekly on Wednesday. And if you're interested in the educational component that we were discussing at the end of the episode, with Girlology, those courses I will begin offering in March. And so if you're not following along on social, you can find me at Sky Women's Health and at Dr. Carolyn Moyers, that's DR Carolyn Moyers, and on our website, www.skywomenshealth.com. Until next week, be well.